This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, mates of Equity Mates. I guess that just makes you equity mates. Anyway, it's Bryce here. One of the most frequently asked questions we get is, where do we find information about all these stocks and and where's a good place to start? Now, we could do a whole episode on this and we often do touch on it, but the best place to start is by signing up to our Thought Starters weekly email. Each week, we send you some cool stuff that has caught our eye during the week, as well as some more detailed articles on stocks and invested-related content. We also include Basics 101, These are articles tailored specifically for beginners to really propel you on your way. We don't spam you. I mean, we hate spam. It's once a week and there's enough stuff in there to occupy you for a full day of browsing at work. Now, Ren puts a lot of effort into finding quality articles for you guys. So if anything, just sign up so he feels the love. Head to equitymates.com and chuck in your email at the bottom of the page. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, where we help you learn to invest in 15 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. How are you? Good, good. Always good. So, we've had part one of Andrew Brown, where we looked at some of the stocks that he recommended to us last time he was on the show, and we looked at uh, how he keeps on top of his information yep. flow, which was uh, a fascinating interview for us. We both got some great stuff out of it, and we hope the listeners did too. If you haven't listened to it, definitely go back and listen to it, uh, because it's a great lead into this one. So what we wanted to do with Andrew, and it's something that we haven't done with any of the expert investors that we speak to, but we wanted to delve specifically into how he actually analyzes a stock. What is it that he looks for in stocks when it comes to him trying to determine if he wants to buy or not? So we let Andrew choose the stock and we said, look, these are the parameters. We want to understand from beginning to end what you're looking for. And can you explain to us uh, why you have chosen this stock, Ren? Yes. So the stock that Andrew chose was Cab Charge, ASX code CAB. Um, he will do a bit of explaining about what Cab Charge is and uh, what business they are in. It's in the name, really. But yeah. um, <laughs> he'll, he'll do some explaining in the episode. Um, but yeah, look, this was a great one for me. I, um, this is something that I really want to understand through this podcast and speaking to our guests, how they 
how they identify potential stocks, what their process is from there, how they value it, and then what they do once they've purchased the stock, uh, how they maintain information flow, where, how they continue to make decisions. Um, and so that these were the questions that we got to ask him. So I, I felt pretty lucky that we he gave us his time and we got to learn a lot. Absolutely. It was a great insight into the way that he was thinking. So yeah, I had a great time with him as well. Apologies going forward for any of the sound yeah, uh, recording yeah. that you've got. We've got at the end. Uh, halfway through, uh, the cleaner of his office decided to switch on the vacuum, so yeah, <laughs> it might be a bit at the end. But uh, bear with us; it doesn't last too long. Hopefully, at this point, we've found a way to edit it out, and this <laughs> and you guys are confused by this part of the intro. But if not, we apologise. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy. So that was uh, an intro to an intro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think that was a good uh, summary of some of the main concepts that yeah. now we're going to uh, sort of apply to your process. Absolutely. So um, maybe we'll introduce the company that we're going to sort of use as an example throughout this process. Yeah. And that is a company that we spoke about in our last Absolutely. episode. And you, were, you took particular pride in... Uh, yeah. In lording it over one of our podcast rivals, okay, yes. Motley Fool. <laughs> yeah. And that company was CapCharge. That's right. So yeah. we only get CapCharge. I think the stock was um, the stock was in the high twos when we spoke last time. Mm. Um, the stock currently is, is just above two dollars. You might think well, that's been pretty terrible. What you need to remember is in the meantime I've had one dollar and four cents of forty francs of dividends mm. out of CapCharge. So we haven't, in a total return sense, we haven't made a lot. Of course, a lot of my returns come from the franking credits, which may or may not be refundable in cash in the future, uh, depending on uh, which government gets in after the next election. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, so from a tax, from an after-tax point of view, it's actually not a bad investment at all. The, the price did get up to about four dollars at one. Yes, it did. That, that preceded those dividends being given oh, out. Okay. Yeah. okay, what happened with cap charges? It sold a couple of assets, which we're going to talk about, um, and ended up with too much cash, and so it paid out like eighty cents a share for your franc dividend. Wow. So, um, I guess the question is, you identified cap charge. But yes. Let's start from the start. Yeah. Why have charged? How did it come across yep. your desk? Yep. And what made you sort of what piqued your interest? Okay. Um, it's probably worthwhile explaining what cap charge is. Okay. He, he basically is the tax industry in all its guises. First of all, it's the charging system for cabs. So if you pay by credit card, he's the major but not the only uh, payment system. And they take a fee. Uh, off your off your credit card for uh, for using their payment system, uh, that fee has come down. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, secondly, CapCharge is the largest owner of cab uh, license plates in New South Wales, so it owns taxi plates, uh, and it's also a big owner in Victoria, a big owner now in South Australia, and also in Queensland and elsewhere. So it's, in 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 totality, it's the largest owner of taxi plates in Australia. So if you want to drive taxis and you need to lease a taxi, you know, they're your best bet uh, through them. Uh, they're most best known in Sydney as Taxis Combined, uh, who now changed their name to One Three Cabs, and I'll come on to why again in a minute. The third thing about cab charges, they are the biggest provider of 
effectively messaging services in the taxi industry. So if you're going to buzz to get a job, okay, um, obviously because they are the old taxis combined um, as, as a fleet, so they're like a fleet manager and obviously hand out jobs, okay, and regulate those jobs and obviously increasing that's been done through apps, uh, uh, you know, rather than just reading up and, and speaking to someone. In addition to that, they did have uh, until uh, last year some investments in uh, a bus company. Uh, you would know them as Hills Buses here. They're actually okay. called CDC Delroe, and they ran particularly school routes mm-hmm. um, in various parts of Sydney, most notably up to the northwest. And they also had some investments in taxi fleets and services in the UK, notably in Aberdeen, Birmingham, and, and a little bit in London. Okay, so they had everything they wanted to do with cabs. They also had quite a big property portfolio. So it's to do with cabs, cab charge had had its finger in the pie mm. uh, categorically. So why were they interesting? Well, first of all, if you're a value investor, just by description of them, you'd probably start thinking two words, which is treasure trove. <laughs> a lot of goodies in there. Um, the second thing is the share price had collapsed from ten dollars to two dollars. Um, why was that? Uh, that was largely due to um, two components of regulatory charge. The first was that the fee they were allowed to charge for debiting your credit card it used to be 10% everywhere in Australia and basically it was regulated down to 5%. That happened quite gradually because it's done on a state-by-state basis, not on an Australia-wide basis. So in fact, the last one only came into play in the first half of this financial year. The second regulatory baseball bat, of course, was wielded by those uh, American loss-making uh, students <laughs> called Uber. <Yeah. laughs> and Uber effectively was, uh, for a while, outlawed in certain bits of Australia, most notably Victoria. Um, uh, but, you know, and as has happened pretty much around the world, um, you know, Uber's gradually got traction and has been legalised in some form or other. And that's enabled potentially other uh, ride hire services uh, uh, to come into the market as well. Uh, but Uber is the main one. So that's why the share price collapsed. Because basically, a lot of people said this is the best short on the market. Um, you know, it is going to go out of business. And if you look at some other companies around the world, particularly companies that finance taxi medallions in New York, you know, they're really struggling to stay afloat. You know, because the, the taxi business obviously has been belted around by Uber. And you've got to remember, Uber makes money. Uber loses billions of dollars a year. That can only go on for so long. Okay? So I was interested because CapCharge was still making a profit. So some of the ratios I'm going to talk about a little bit later on look very, very cheap to me. And so I started to do um, you know, some homework on whether CapCharge was just going to, going to go out of business. Okay? Gradually. Slowly, you know, death by a thousand cuts, but gradually go out of business. Um, and I came to the conclusion after doing a, a various amount of research that the answer to that was no. Okay, and you know, maybe dig into the kind of research I did. Okay, the first bit of real hard nosed research I did was I drove Uber for three months. Really? Okay. Now, the reason, the reason I did that, it's all very well being an Uber customer. Hmm. Okay. Now we all know, you know, we all know there's undercut taxis and, and you can ride cheaply. So if you don't do the other side of the equation, you just sit there and you think cab charge ran out of business. 
because it's just, you know, you're getting discounted rides and you don't care. Yeah. Okay? We soon care when it starts raining, by the way, because of course, so there's something across more than the cab when it starts, you know, getting two times, three times surge. I wanted to see what it's like from an Uber driver's point of view, because if Uber drivers make no money, then Uber can't exist. Yeah. Because it becomes effectively slave labour. Now, in the United States, that is very different to Australia. We have a much bigger uh, adherence in Australia to basically regulated wage rates, minimum wages, and things like that. And so people don't like wage systems which basically condemn them to earn significantly less than the minimum wage. I acknowledge that there are people in Australia who are quite happy to earn less than the minimum wage, and they have been exploited quite badly by some publicly listed companies, okay? uh, some in the franchise industry, uh, you know, where effectively the franchisees only make money if they underpay the, the staff. Mm-hmm. They can't possibly make any money because of the ridiculous cost of goods and the ridiculous cost of rent and everything else. So I wanted to see, you know, is Uber just another version of that? And the conclusion I came to was that uh, I did it very early on in the piece, but the conclusion I came to is it was quite clear if you drove Uber for full time, you were not going to earn minimum wage. Okay. okay, and you're certainly not going to earn minimum wage when you took into account the proper accounting of your time and your costs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and your costs, of course, are petrol. Yeah. I can guarantee you that you have a much bigger chance of copying traffic fines and yeah. points. And of course, the other thing is, is that you're wearing your car at yeah. a much bigger rate of knots. Yeah. Because if, like me, you drive in Sydney, you're not driving long distances, you know, along. Motorways, you, you'll basically stop, start, stop, start, traffic lights, traffic jams, and everything else. Yeah. <coughs> so um, I could, you know, I could make a dollar out of it. There's no question about that at all. But I rapidly came to the conclusion that pre-depreciation, um, pet- you know, um, but after petrol, you're probably getting about twenty bucks now. So once I reached the conclusion that it was basically about twenty bucks an hour. I came to the conclusion that cab driving, rather than Uber driving, was actually probably still pretty attractive, and that there'd be people who you know enjoy that sort of stuff or need to do that, who would be a lot happier being a cab driver. But they're only going to be happy being a cab driver if one or two things happen. First of all, could they do cabs and Uber together? Yes, you can. As you know, you can book, you can book an Uber sort of an Uber cab, which yeah. actually a taxi books for Uber. Um, secondly, was the people that operated the taxi industry are going to get their proverbial together because there have been a number of years where the industry had been underinvested in because it was a great cash cow, okay? And that's what gave Uber a particular opportunity in Australia and in Sydney in particular. And so I started doing homework on cab shows, the company itself, uh, started to um, interact with the management, you know, just through webcasts and things like that. And started to realise there'd been an absolute sea change in the management of the company. Okay, where they realised that they let down the customers yeah. and they let down the drivers. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you got to the stage, you know, the old smelly cab idea, you know, that, that basically cabs were dirty, expensive, whatever. Yeah. Um, and of course, they were hard to book. You know, whenever you just went to on your own. Yeah. So of course, what's happened since? Well, cab shows are completely revamp their business. Yeah. One, three cabs, it's an app. 
Is it as good as Uber? Not quite. Is it really as good? Absolutely. You can contact the driver who's coming to pick you up and know what his or her name is, you know where they are, so you can get in touch with them and say, hey, you should turn right, not left, mm. when they're coming to your house or unit block to pick you up. Um, <coughs> the cabs are much cleaner, the drivers have got better uniforms, they've got better technology, so they're happier. And they're earning better rates than they would earn if they were driving in Uber and because, of course, the higher cost of a cab is obviously greater. And they tend to have greater knowledge of the roads and everything else. Not always that knowledge, but you know, in general, the service should be better. Okay, so that I started to realise that cab charge still had a role to play. Cab still had a role to play, and then there are other little idiosyncrasies that have said when it rains, cabs are cheaper than Uber. Okay, I would agree that they're cheaper at most parts of the night as well, though. Yeah. For shorter distances, I'm not so sure about longer yes. distances, but for shorter distances in the city, yeah. I mean, we have no clients getting a cab just because they're quite comparable with Uber. That, that's right. I mean, there's so, I mean, what, what's going on, I mean, you know, particularly with smart young people, is of course they arbitrage you know, cabs versus Uber versus <laughs> any other ride share that's out Okay? And the big thing is, I mean, don't forget, ride shares don't work unless you've got a lot of cows on the road. Mm. Yeah, so I'd argue in, in cities like Sydney, uh, unless somebody just floods a particular part of Sydney, so like out of Western Sydney with cars, it's pretty hard for other rideshare services to get up. Okay? So we've got lots of Ubers already, it's well known and ubiquitous, and we've got lots of cabs already and they're dominated by one three cabs. Okay? Mm-hmm. So um, I did homework like that. And that's really important because in this particular business, there's no real time statistics. Okay? You know if you're analysing a bank, you've got credit growth numbers that come out every month from the Reserve Bank and the Australian Bureau of Statistics. You know if you invest in a building materials business. You get building statistics come out every month. So you know that in certain parts of Australia there's a lot of building going on, in other parts maybe not. You know what type of building it is. Okay, so you can start to form a, a, an economic viewpoint, if you will, that your uh, that, that industry is going well or it's not going so well. Okay, and, and react to that, as well as the company intelligence that you get from, um, you know, from listening to company webcasts or participating in, in if you're a professional. Okay, in the cab industry, there's nothing. There are statistics, but they come out like about a year and a half after the year they finish. You know, they're, 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 they're pretty hopeless in terms of industry stats, except from one source, which is CapChart. So all you can do is it's kind of like the wet finger test. You know, so you jump in a cab, what do you do? Talk to a cab driver. How's business, mate? Oh, it's terrible. You know, well, it's great. You know, whatever. I mean, it's just the whole thing of speaking to people and understanding because there's no industry stats, okay? So it, that can be a bit hard, and that's why I went and did it for myself and, um, you know, actually work with them to understand completely and utterly the economics of how the threat to cap charge worked. Okay? So quite important. Um, so so maybe just to recap, so yeah. at this point you were driven Uber for three months, you yeah. had realized that the the value proposition for Uber drivers wasn't quite there. Yes. Um, and that you know that the, the cost, you know, when the surge pricing was comparable yeah. or yeah. perhaps better. So yeah. you realised there was probably more competition than the market thought there would be in that industry. Absolutely. 
But then what, where did you go from there to decide okay. that cab charge as a business yeah. is, a, is a worthwhile investment? What, what was really critical, as I said, is, is the, the, there was a management change about three years ago. Um, and that caused cab charge, as I said, to reinvent itself. And what cab charge has basically reinvented itself as is, is basically a personal transport company. And so obviously that means, you know, that means a value proposition, so, you know, service versus price and everything else. But what started to become very clear, and, and, and to be fair, this is cap charge statistics because they're the main players, not the listed player. But what's quite clear is that, that there is growth in personal transport. You know, people are using a lot more personal transport these days, uh, and there is growth. It's just that, of course, that growth has been split between, you know, a lot more players than it used to. Okay, because yeah, we've got Uber. So Uber's grown the market. So guess what? It's grown the market for cab charge as well, <laughs> believe it or not, because people are used to actually saying, oh, I won't get a bus. Although in Sydney, public transport is booming, so people are obviously moving their cars in a much, much bigger way, They're just to stick it through. So start to look at the statistics of that, which are largely from cab charge, um, you know, cab charge provided stuff. And it started to look at the way the company was reinventing itself in, in the service bit to say, yes, they have a future that way. Okay? Uh, and it was quite clear I wanted to see they had technology and that they were investing in technology. And I was probing in terms of how much they were investing. Um, and starting to see, obviously, on my own phone, the, hey, well, this app's actually okay. And then it gets better and better and better and better. So I started to look at those kind of things as well. If, you know, as well as starting to get into the numbers, okay? Uh, because obviously, if you've got a business like CampCharge that's threatened long-term, you know, and this is not a risk-free investment quite clearly, it's just a very cheap one, as I'll tell you in a minute, um, you know, then, you know, you need the numbers to really stack up. If CampCharge had a lot of debt, you, you wouldn't go near it, okay? Because you're going to discover CampCharge is not a lot of debt. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So the critical thing is basically if this company was going to go broke, it was going to go broke real slow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's going to give me a chance to say the thesis has changed. I think I'm wrong. Clearly, I was going to lose some money, but I wasn't going to lose it all. shoot myself. Yeah. I wasn't going to lose it all. Yeah. Okay. Because it was going to go, you know, as I say, it's going to die pretty slow. In the market. Okay. So yeah, that 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 was a really critical thing. So then we get to the sort of the, the nitty gritty of, of the numbers, you know, okay, you know, of uh, you know, of why did this thing, given all that we said, okay, why did it actually start to stand out and, and appeal? And it doesn't matter what sort of invested you are, there's one thing above anything else that is very, very appealing, and that's just cash. Yeah. Okay, or cash flow, okay. So when I started to look, um, when, when I looked at this company, it had a lot of spare assets on the balance sheet, okay? As I said, it was a bit of a treasure trove. So first of all, it had the bus company, owned 49% of the bus company, okay? And it also owned 49% of this thing in the UK called City Fleet. And its joint venture partner, um, was Delgro, which is a listed company in Singapore. Okay, so aha, we have a cross check already. What are they carrying this stuff at? What 
what's their carrying value for these things? Well, they're actually consolidated in their accounts, but you can see their commentary about them and everything else. Because it became abundantly clear that these were non-core assets to countercharge if they're reinventing themselves as personal transport in Australia. Right? However, there is a problem. Because they were carried on the balance sheet with a value of $297 million. And to give you an idea, that was 20 times the after-tax earnings that they were getting out of these things. Right. Now, to give you an idea, at the same period of time, the stock market's overall multiple of after-tax earnings. So it's equity, 300000 of our house, divided by our after-tax return. Uh, it was about 15 to 16 times. And these things were not broken. Yeah. Okay. So it's obvious to me that they were blatantly overvalued on the balance sheet and I was going to have to make an adjustment to what I thought they would get for them when they were sold. And, and I made somewhere in the order of an 80 to $90 million adjustment. Wow. Okay. To that when I started to value cap charge. And as if by magic... Last financial year, they sold both of these things and their total write-down was about 94 million. Oh, wow. Okay. I also don't mind telling you I was particularly vociferous at the annual general meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Explained and, and asked direct questions of the auditor, which you are allowed to do, okay. as to how come they hadn't done, picked this up the year before and everything else. Because <laughs> I've made the point at the prior annual general meeting that if I could short sell their uh, investments in these things, I categorically wouldn't. <laughs> so that's absolutely right. Now, that's a really big thing because it's a great thing. If you've got a company that's, that's needing to turn around or you've got a company that you know, isn't going particularly well but you know, may start, you want to see them get rid of non-core assets. Okay? Liquidate those non-core assets and use the money to either repay debt or in the case of cap charge, reward shareholders. Because they've got over 200 million bucks for this side. And they've got 120 million shares on the share. So they repay all their debt, have net cash, and they too much net cash. So they, that's why they were able to pay out these very large dividends last year. Yeah. Okay? So that was the first thing. Is once I knew that they were started, they were, they were kind of really thinking about selling the assets. That was really, really good. Okay? Now, the, the, the second bit of it is that's all very well. There's no good in selling assets and, and paying a big dividend if the rest of the business is not going particularly well. And their EBITDA was going down, okay? And it was largely going down because, of course, of these caps on the amount of money they could charge on credit card fees. The good thing about cap charge is its disclosure in its accounts is really good. They segment out their revenue quite in quite a granular fashion as to how much they get effectively from, I'm going to call it credit card fees, how much they get from the taxi servicing network, in other words, you know, actually, you know, what, how much they get for leasing out plates, how much they get for buying and selling plates and brokering plates and things like that. So it's actually really good. So you can sort of work out in broad terms what profits they get from each bit of the business. And obviously, Profits from brokering plates, well, they're you know, not great business, really, mm -hmm. it's okay, it sort of pays the rent, okay? Whereas what you really want is you want the profit out of the cab charge bit itself and the profits out of basically you know, leasing cabs to, to people to, to, to drive. That's the more valuable bit of the business. 
So I started sitting there doing a lot more homework on breaking that down. Okay. The third thing that CAP charges, the one thing about it that is really, really appealing about it, it's got a very conservative balance sheet. So it didn't have much debt and then got this big infusion of cash from asset sales, but it's always got lots of positive working capital. Okay, so it's receivables, debtors, minus its creditors or payables, you know, is a big number. To give you an idea, at the end of December 2017, it's about $38 million. Okay? Let's just put it, let's just put cap charge into context, okay? And we'll use our house analogy again. Cap charge has hundred just over 120 million shares on issue, and they trade around two dollars. Okay, so the equity market value of cap charge is $241 million. Okay, now let's just stop there for one minute. Okay, just stop there for one minute. You can buy the central player in Australia's taxing industry. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Switching to Shopify helps you sell smarter at every stage of your business. Take full control of your brand with your own custom online store. Wow, looks amazing. Find more customers with our easy-to-use marketing tools. Piece of cake. And let the best converting checkout on the planet do its thing. Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Switch to Shopify today for a $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. For $240 million. Does that make sense? Because it doesn't to me. It sounds way too low. Okay, when you see the valuations given to Uber, okay, which makes no money. Okay. So I, I just kept thinking in my brain, it just didn't make sense that I could buy this big player in the taxing industry, which is not going away just yet, for 240 million bucks. Now, as at the 31st of December 2017, cash out is $20 million of cash on the balance sheet, and it owes three and a half million of debt. So within that $241 million, there's actually $16.5 million of net cash. Okay? And there's also $38 million of net receivables, $63 million of receivables and $25 million of payables. Right? So if you think about it, the value of the business actually isn't $241 million. It's $241 million minus $17 million of receivables minus uh, of, uh, of net cash, and then $38 million of, in my opinion, surplus working capital. Okay? So if, if you think about it, um, yeah, the value of the business is only somewhere in the order of $185 million by the time you do that bit of arithmetic. So um, I'll relate that to earnings in a minute. 
What CapCharge have also done is they had a treasure trove of properties. They rationalised their property holdings, made sure they moved into uh, the right places. Bear in mind, if you run a cap, like you do need a property. Mm. You know, you've got to put a cap somewhere, and yeah. somewhere, all that sort of stuff. Okay, but they, they sold a surplus property in Sydney and, and got great money for that as well. Okay, so there's something else to look out for. If you see companies, there aren't very many these days, but in the 1960s and 70s, there are heaps with surplus properties on their balance sheet that were very undervalued on the balance sheet as well, which is why there were some takeovers in that era mm-hmm. uh, and asset strips. Right? So for my $185 million of cap charge, so remember that's the equity, minus, in our case, net cash, because they don't have net debt, minus surplus working capital, that gives uh, $185 million or so. Okay? This company okay, uh, earns somewhere in the order now having had its earnings um, viscerated over the last few years, this company still earns somewhere in the order of $38 million a year of EBITDA, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortisation. Okay? So divide $38 million into $185 million and express it as a percentage. Okay? If you think about it, you're, you know, you're earning... Uh, basically a very, very high teens return on your money. Now, in addition to that, we all acknowledge that CapCharge has got to reinvest in this business. Okay? Um, you know, so it, it's got to spend money on uh, plant equipment, it's got to spend money on um, increase, you know, making sure it's got technology. So it's spent more money on that. So this has been a company where you didn't want it to spend less money on stuff. You wanted capital expenditure to happen, and it's ramped up its capital expenditure. So it spends about um, ten million bucks a year on capital expenditure these days, and it also expenses off a lot more money on building apps and things of that nature. So, you know, what we end up with is we end up with a company that's making thirty-eight million dollars of pre-tax, pre-interest earnings. Does that tally up with the cash flow? How do you check that? Because there are so many companies that talk about EBITDA these days. And then you go analyse the cash flow statement and it's on a different planet to EBITDA. <laughs> and I can assure you it's usually on a much smaller planet. <laughs> really on a bigger one. You can go to, you can go to the cap charge accounts and you can look and you know, one thing I, I, I would you know, suggest you do is you look at the top two lines of the cash flow statement. So in the case of cap charge, it's on page six of their interim results uh, for the six months of 31 December 2017. Their receipts from customers were $631 million and their payments to suppliers and, and others and employees were $612 million. So we were a little bit of rounding. That's my arithmetic's going to skew with. That's $19 million difference. Okay? And the good news is the EBITDA that they reported in that first six months was just, just a tiny, tiny bit less than $19 million. It was 18 and a bit. That's logical. Why? This company gets paid in cash. You don't pay for your cab, right? Six months later, you pay there and there with yeah. a credit card. Okay, so it gets paid in cash, but it's also paying out very, very quickly. 
This is not a Woolworths, okay, that takes your cash here and now and pays its suppliers 67 days after the end of the month. <laughs> 60 days after the end of the month in which the goods were delivered. So don't ever deliver goods to Woolworths and Coles on the second day of the month. Maybe all off in a month. Okay, so it's very logical. If you saw cap charge with a big discrepancy between EBITDA and the first two lines of its cash flow statement, there'd be a problem. You'd be wondering why, whether it was a positive one or a negative one. This is, there's no logic in that. Whereas for the retailer, you know, and lots of other businesses, you can play with working capital. You know, big retailers in Australia run massive negative working capital. Uh, the best example I can give to you is a company we've mentioned already today, Apple. Go have a look at Apple's negative working capital. Apple run off other people's money. Okay? They have a massive working capital deficit. Okay? Because their receivables, minus creditors, um, minus payables are huge. Okay, sorry, you know, massively negative. Because, of course, if you're a supplier of Apple, you know, you're in the same position as the supply of Woolworths. Yeah. You know, you beg, get on your knees and say, yes, sir. Okay? You know, they want five more days to pay or whatever. Okay? So uh, that's quite important. Apple's, sorry, it's something like 22% of Apple's site, uh, their, their negative working capital is equivalent to about 22% of site. Wow. That's enormous. Okay? Take it from me, that's gigantic. Yeah. Uh, you know, too many sales are as big as Apple's. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's one reason why you know, Apple really is a, a capital management machine to be able to do that. So the great thing about cash charge is that the cash flow and, and the reported uh, pre-tax, pre-interest uh, profit lines up. So it's very cheap. They produce uh, good amounts of free cash flow after they paid uh, capital expenditure and, uh, and everything else. Um, so that the company basically can continue to accumulate cash, okay, um, from its business at the current level of activity, okay, and so it may be a slow growth company, but the company basically has got lots of opportunities to, in my opinion, buy back its own shares uh, and continue to pay dividends to people as well as investing in the business, okay. I've had a running. Um, I've had a running debate with the board at the last two annual general meetings about why they don't buy their shares back and why they persist in paying high dividends. And the first sign, and it's a rarity, that the company slashed the dividend uh, at the interim results this year. They used to pay 10 cents a share twice a year, so 20 cents a year, and the stock was two bucks in fully frank dividends, tax advantage dividends. That sounds great. But all that was going on is that, that basically people were buying for the dividend, getting no growth. If you generate that much cash, you don't give any dividends. You start buying your own securities back if they yield 10%, fully frank, because it's really expensive equity. Okay? It's extortionately expensive equity. You should be buying that equity back if it's expensive. Remember, if shares are cheap, the equity from the company's point of view is expensive. Because if they want to use those shares to buy another company, they have to issue shares in that certain low price. So hence it's expensive to them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, 
in having big debate and catch-ups because you start by your own shares back. How's the debate with the catch-ups board going? At the moment, not that great. They haven't brought any shares back, but I think, I mean, it's, it's quite surprising that um, they have cut the dividends, as I said, and that uh, is, is very rarely a positive sign in the company, but in this case, I think it is. Um, they, they do certainly have more uh, marketing and development spend, and so they, they do want to keep a bit of money back, or inherently conservative. Um, and so um, I think they're seeing how things go. What is a year transition for them this year? Um, you know, they, they should start to, uh, you know, they're coming out of this uh, path of having you know, their, their things cut off credit cards. So this is more or less the first full year of the moment. One other thing that's been great to see is actually there's been a lot of change on the board. Um, and um, I think in the main it's been positive. Um, and um, the new chairman from uh, the last annual meeting, uh, Paul O'Neill, has a long track record at this report in Alphamay Holdings and our event. Uh, so he, he's a smart ex executive, so he's, uh, he's a good chairman, and, and it's good to see the board have actually started to buy some shares as well. Yeah. Um, because some of the fury as it goes to the annual meeting, the people on the board have lots to know, still in the game at all. Do you have a pass-fail mark for that figure when you look at the company? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I want to see that number uh, usually somewhere in the sort of... I, I want to see it in the teens, definitely. Okay, which means if you turn it round, it's what people would refer to as an EV multiple below 10. Mm -hmm. And depending on the nature of the business, if it's a slower growth business, you know, I preferably want to see it in the fives and sixes and sevens. To give you an idea, when we spoke about my entertainment group uh, a year ago, that figure for them was about five. Yeah. Okay. So it was really cheap. And, and a very strong, guess what? Cash flow driving driven business. Yeah. TV stations, well, you know, they need cash flow. They might be in decline or not growing very quickly, but they need cash when they still work. It's interesting you talk about that ratio, and just going back to our conversation about Apple earlier. Yeah. Someone we've interviewed um, since we first interviewed you was Toby Carlisle, who yeah. uses that um, enterprise value to EBIT ratio, yes. but has used it to recommend Apple recently. Yeah, yeah they're, they're at about 10. Yeah, yeah, you know, which you know depends on what you're sort of thinking about the prospects for their business. Okay, yeah. if you look at I mean, things like Amazon trading about 38 times and yeah. price value not growing cash flow, which I don't care how good Amazon is, when you've got a 38 year horizon, mm -hmm. you've got to get a payback from it, it's too long. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it is, it is a sensible ratio. Look, it's, it's a ratio that grew up with the leverage buyout movement in the United States in the 1980s because yeah. they took that cash flow and obviously borrowed a lot of money against certain types of companies. Um, and you know, that worked sometimes and it's a good payout at the time. So, getting back to Capture, yeah. so at this point you, um, you found that the 
and quite a value that ended uh, ratio yeah. was good. Yeah. The um, inside the board has changed and has yeah. done quite a share, so there's insiders that obviously see yeah. good things. Yeah. Um, you're pretty happy with capital management of the business. Yeah. Was there anything that you thought, oh, hold on, this might be a bit of a red flag? Or? Um, in this particular situation, um, not really. Okay. Because one of the things that you're looking for in any investment, in any thesis, and don't forget, this is a bit of a turnaround situation, mm. okay? but even in a steady state investment, you've got to have a thesis about what you're looking for. Now, you put it red flags, I'm going to call it green flags. <laughs> what are you looking for? Is it this level of earnings? Is it a progression of earnings? Is it uh, the use of cash flow? to reinvest in the business or to distribute or buy back shares or what. Okay, there's a thesis about why you think this company is worth adding on to, okay? And you want to see that thesis realised, okay? And so it's like anything, you know, it's like there are milestones that you're looking for, whether they're levels of earnings or certain actions that the company might take to sell something or buy something or expand in a certain area, whatever they are, okay? And so, in CapCharge's case, they were, yeah, they were, they were generally remedious of things. Yeah. Selling property, selling those assets that we just didn't return uh, and the non-core and then paying what bit of debt they had, etc. Whereas for, say, a growth company, you know, you might be looking for them to introduce new products, okay, for those new products to do well. So, I mean, you're continuing flags for different issues out, most obviously are new product launches. Mm. Yeah. Market expansion, price increases, etc., etc., yeah. and yeah, lack of competition, lack of real competition, okay, or lack of competition having a real knockout product, you know, that, that would really devalue Apple in a major way, you know, in, in a way that other handset manufacturers in the past have been, you know, sent out of business like Nokia and BlackBerry and, and others. Okay, so yeah, in every situation, it's not so much the red flags, but it's the positive things. Now, of course, if you're not getting those, when the green flags turn red, yeah, yeah, okay, and, and that's where you start the thesis. You've got to keep questioning the thesis. Okay, now that doesn't mean every day. Okay, it may be uh, obviously in the US because you get quarterly reports. Um, you, you, you know, you want to make sure the company's broadly on track to what you're thinking. Uh, but certainly in Australia, you know, a couple of times a year you've got these reports. Uh, a bigger company may have an investor day. You know, they have to post all the slides and, and, and commentary up of that. So, you know, you want to see things like that. A lot of these things are webcast. So even if you're not able to ask a question, because like, you're not an institutional analyst, you can certainly listen to the questions and, and uh, you know, evaluate whether you know, the, the company's not, not quite going the way you want to do to. Yeah. So can I just ask then, if, as long as you're getting the green flags, there's nothing that would be a sort of instant turn-off, you know, like insiders selling their shares or... No, I don't, I don't, I don't look, sometimes insiders have to sell their shares if they're heavily committed, you know, they have tax bills and things like that. I prefer not to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I like anybody, you know, you want to see, and it's great if you see the management really stretching themselves to buy shares. Um, you know, I love seeing that, and certainly, um, you know, nobody doesn't. I mean, I should point out, you know, some of the recent 
spectacular failures in Australia, management book shares immediately. <laughs> Well, Sky, for example, uh, you know, uh, bigger, and I think they did as well. Um, so that's not always, you know, that's not, you know, it's it, it's not always, you know, the, the thing that you, you expect. Yeah, you've got to look at it on a piece, you know, on a case by case basis. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the 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 main flags are just really that um, you know, the business is not running the way you thought it was going to run. Uh, that. You know, management basically have taken their eye off the ball, and you sometimes only get to know that when, when it's happened. You sometimes, obviously, if you're a full time analyst, if you cover competing companies right, in a sector, then you, you pick that up very early. And then often, analysts speak to companies that are unlisted that are in that particular sector, and they often give you clues that the listed companies are cutting prices or having problems here or there. Yeah. So you, you come up with your thesis and then you look yeah. for your green flags. Yeah. My question is, do you have, say for example, price earnings, yeah. share growth, these sorts of, sorts of things, yeah. without the experience that you have to get an idea of what they are relative in the industry, yeah. do you have like a benchmark for yeah. each that you further okay. look at and go, earnings and share growth, 5% a year, not even worth it? For example, or two percent a year, five percent a year earnings for share growth is positively spectacular. To give an idea, just 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 to put that in context, yeah, that's great intro. Um, <laughs> uh, put it in context, since uh, since pre the GFC, so since two thousand and seven, um, earnings per share for the Australian market in its entirety they're actually lower now than they were then. So you wonder why the um, ASX S&P 200 is, is still nowhere close to 6850, which is what it peaked out at in November 2007. And that's one of logical reasons. Earnings are the one that they were there for the entire market. You know? And you start to look at it, you, you think, well, that can't possibly be the case. Or, you know, start looking at Telstra and a few other things, and you, you get the idea. Uh, and all those financial companies that disappeared in the GFC, the bank, the and the cars and whatever. So, um, so EPS growth of 5% in the current context is not as bad as you think, but you do have to obviously relate it to how much you're paying for it. So a lot of people use something called a peg ratio, which is a, which is a price to growth ratio. So if you were paying, um, so, so basically if you were... Um, if you were paying a 20 times PE for a 5% growing company, you've got a peg ratio of four. That's pretty expensive, okay? Whereas on the other hand, if you uh, think about the, the reverse to use extremes, and you had a PE of five, price earnings ratio of five for a company growing at 20%, uh, you have a peg ratio of 0.25, which would be absolutely cheap, okay? People tend to look, if they use peg ratios, they look for peg ratios greater than one. Okay. So you're quite happy to pay. Uh, you're quite happy to pay sort of. Sorry, uh, peg ratios below one in the way I've characterised it. So you're quite happy to pay a price earnings ratio of fifteen for a company that's growing at twenty percent. Yeah. And things like that. Uh, I use enterprise value EBITDA a lot because um, some of the people don't like it. I use it a lot because I really think companies are just one business. 
You know, even quite simple companies are made up of, in my opinion, you know, multitudes of other little businesses. There might be a key business that you think is the reason you're invested, but usually there's some other bits and bobs they have as well. Okay, so you, know, you take a company like Perpetual. Most people think Perpetual's a fund manager, or it is. And that's why, certainly why most people have owned the shares over the last few years. Uh, but it's also a very big trustee company. Uh, and it's also now got a private sort of private wealth management distribution business uh, where it sort of manages other people's not not their money in an investment sense but it's like a financial planner. Okay, and then our meaningful businesses. And the way you value each of those businesses is quite different. Why why wouldn't the enterprise value to EBITDA work for just a single business? It will. It will for a single business, but if you think about something like um, you know, something like a perpetual, you would probably use three different valuation. In fact, I do use three different valuation metrics to value each of those businesses, right. add them up, uh, deduct a, a cost for the corporate headquarters, I'm going to take off the debt, and I come up with a, a figure. Okay. okay. And so it would be the same if there are differential little businesses, you know, within, uh, you know, within yeah. the other company. Okay. okay. But you know, even EBITDA on a single business, yeah, I think it's reasonable. And you do equate it back. One of the, one of the things I like about EBITDA, okay, is it really cements this idea that shares are not bits of paper to be traded and thrown around. You are buying a claim on a small part of a business, okay? And if I said to you, I want you to buy this entire business, you are first of all going to look at, you know, so for everything else, you're going to look at the amount of cash the business generates in order to match out to pay for it. And that takes away the financial structure of the business, whether there's a lot of debt or very little debt. Yeah. Okay, so at this point in the process, yeah. you have done your due diligence, you yeah. have confirmed your thesis, you've yeah. seen some green flags, yeah. you're feeling confident that this is a company that you want to invest in. Yeah. What what is the process before you hit buy? Are you trying to quantify it down to a price, yep. or are you getting to a range? I, there, there's two ways to look at it for me. Yeah. The first is to say, I think cap charge is worth X dollars a share. Okay. That's quite difficult. Okay, because there are no comparatives. There are no peer group companies where you can say, hey. It's competitor trades on an EBITDA multiple of 10. Yeah. These guys are on 6 yeah. or 5. Okay? And so what I, what I do is I tend to turn it the other way around and say at the current share price, my effective cash flow return on investment is, as we've discussed, it's about 20%. Yeah. And that's outrageous. Yeah. Okay? Unless it's going to go down the toilet very quickly. <laughs> okay? And so I tend to look at cap charge that way rather than drive it to a share price. Many, many other companies I drive to a share price by using analysis of their cohort. Yeah. So bank shares, I mean, there's heaps of bank shares around the world, so you can can do all sorts of analysis on that. Insurance companies, the same thing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, companies that are asset-based, property companies or... Uh, companies that just have portfolios of shares, uh, you can actually drive them to a value and yeah. say, if these guys got smart, liquidated, you know, 
the, the stocks were two bucks, I'm buying it for a dollar fifty, you know, there's thirty three percent upside. Yeah. So I do both. And so I guess you could reverse engineer it as well and say that if this is the price now and this is the cash flow investment, you weren't happy with that. Correct. So you could then work out an entry price. Absolutely. By figuring out what you were happy with yeah. and what price that would be. Absolutely. I mean, in the case of cab charge, I mean, I also, um, you know, which is outside the scope of tonight, but, um, you know, I also, I build, I build financial models, you know, to make sure that when the earnings do come out, you know, are they kind of approximating what I think, mm. okay? Um, you know, I build those models up and those models help me with the value as well. With cap charge, even if you thought cap charge was a very, very low growth investment, you could drive, you could sort of assume the kind of cash flows for cap charge out well into the future, which I think is fraught with risk. Mm. But, you know, you could come up with a net present value of those cash flows and hence obviously a share price, mm. you know, a hard number. But I think in the case of cab charge, because of all the change in the industry, and I'm not that confident to do that. Okay, so then once you've hit trade, yep. it's in your portfolio. <laughs> yep. um, I guess the question is then if cab charge, we've already touched on yep. how often you, um, you sort of check it and you can turn your faces. But then, you know, if cap charge goes up in value, yeah. how do you know when it's time to sell? Do you yeah. use stop yeah. losses yeah. and stuff like that? No, not at all. In the case of cap charge, it's more likely it's gone down value. So it's a case <laughs> of, particularly on something like this as well, I mean, it's, it, it's good. I mean, you don't use all your firepower in one go. You know, so if, you, if your unit of investment's $20,000, let's say, mm. you don't put all 20 grand in. Mm. It's really best to, you know, put part of it in yeah. and just wait a little bit. And, and see if, if the thing is tracking the way you want, because you will never pick the share price at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Okay, likewise you're going to sell at the top. Um, so that it's best that I often what I call lead into the thing. So I might buy, you know, I might spend time buying the stock over a period of time, say six months. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And that's your approach across the board. Um, unless I see a very, very specific opportunity. I've seen a very, very specific opportunity in the last two days and I've got an entire unit in three days. Right. Okay. So not the But generally that's my approach and, and that's been a very good approach for cap charts because the shares, you know, the shares are trading between like a you know, bear in mind there's no dividend adjusted, but it's sort of, you know, effectively about three dollars. Twenty dividend adjusted from you know the four dollars minus eighty cents of dividend, you know down a dollar sixty. So it's in quite a wide range, okay. And and you know so I tend to buy them and they be really happy, you know, knocked around and figuring that you know things are progressing broadly the way I thought. Yeah. So so far in capture, I've, I've bought three lots of stock about you know a few months of that. Yeah. And for our listeners, that's the concept that we talk about dollar cost, dollar cost averaging. averaging. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, um, die cost averaging is, is obviously when you just commit a set amount of money using to stock like an index or a, a fund, um, you know, usually, you know, like a small monthly amount or maybe a larger quarterly amount. Uh, but you can do that on individual stocks as well. So, that, you know, if, if you want to see how things play out rather than putting all your money in one go, you, you put a little bit in each time. Pending brokerage fee. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> these brokerage fees are coming down. Yeah, yeah and that's line is twenty bucks. So yeah, yeah. Uh, easy. So, and then um, do you 
have do you define in terms of time or in terms of rules when you enter? Or is just time? The one thing I really get people to understand is time is not that relevant. Okay, you can't dictate what the stock market's going to do time-wise. Okay, now um, let's just surmise. I thought cash was worth four dollars a share. Okay, Uh, I don't. Okay. (laughs) And that's not a number, you know, it's just I'm just using it as a hypothetical. We don't know, so can charge is two bucks. I don't know when it's going to go to four dollars. It might go to four dollars tomorrow morning, so it might be a takeover. Okay? It might take a few years to go to four dollars, and they're quite clearly not cognizant of the time value of money. Okay? But I can't dictate when it gets there. Yeah. Okay. Just another thing, why don't I use stock losses? Okay, what's the point? Because surely, if you think if I'm buying cat charge at two dollars because I think it's worth more than two dollars, it's very attractive. Mm. If it gets to a dollar sixty, you want to buy more. Yeah, you want to sell at a dollar sixty. You want to buy more. Okay. What about if, what about on the flip side? If you have a stock that's run, yeah. but you don't want to cut your losses, or you don't want to cut your wings short. Yeah, would you want to trade it up? No, you know, I, mean, it's, I mean, to me, it's just a case that you keep evaluating and then if the shares have reached a level that you think is now too expensive, mm. given the nature of the business, yeah. okay, then, then obviously you start making the decision to, to trim the holding back and potentially exit. Okay? I mean, the stocks, you will often hear stocks referred to as compounders. Okay, they're companies that earn large returns on equity and hence can compound the reasonable level of earnings growth well into the future, and they're usually the kind of stocks you don't sell, yeah, because you know, they've got a very good business that enables them to do that. And a lot of people will tell you, even if they get a bit expensive, they don't worry about it. They don't sell them and try and buy them back, because usually when they do, you know, all of a sudden there's a really good quarter of earnings or something, and they skyrocket past where they were before. Yeah. So you just they're the kind of stocks you just hold on to and, and, and everything else. You know, cap charges is not one of those ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of your process. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, very insightful, yes, and uh, some great <coughs> introduction to some concepts that uh, we haven't touched in detail. But um, as you said, Ren, we'll put uh, the analogy of the house up in yep, yep. up in our blog, so that our listeners can go back. I think just with the interest of time. There's nine questions that we went through. Yes. Um, we're not going to ask them, but I There's a lot of easy yes and no. I think, yeah, we could do some yes and no's <coughs> just to see if cab charge fits the bill. Uh, okay. okay. Yeah. So right. I think Shoot. we can do. So question one, and for the listeners that aren't aware of what we're doing, we discussed this in previous episodes, so okay. definitely go back. But question one, does the business have an identifiable consumer monopoly? No. Okay, so that's a no. It has, it has, sorry, it has an identifiable monopoly, or not monopoly, but oligopoly. Not a monopoly. It has an oligopoly, obviously, in the provision of personal transport services and also the charging for those services as well. Okay. So it's not a monopoly, but it's certainly an oligopoly. Okay. Number two, are the earnings of the company strong and showing an upward trend? No. <laughs> They're strong and not showing an upward trend. Uh, so number three, uh, is the company conservatively financed? Absolutely, far too conservative. Yeah, <laughs> that's a big yes. Yeah. 
Uh, number four, does the business consistently earn a higher rate of return on shareholders' equity? Uh, yes, it actually does, yeah. even though it's lower, you know, even though it's lower earnings. Yes, it does. So does the business get to retain its earnings? Yes, absolutely it does. Okay? Because it's, it's earnings minus capital expenditure, minus tax, minus, well, there's no interest payments so and no cap charges, positive number. Yeah. How much does the business spend on maintaining current operations? Uh, about ten million a year of capital expenditure. Okay. Uh, so, is the company free to invest retained earnings in new business opportunities, expansion of operations, or share repurchases? Yes, it is. And how good a job does management do at this? Um, somewhere between appalling and disgraceful. <laughs> <laughs> I you like the management. I do. I like the management. The job of, of all that is not the management. It's actually the board. Uh, yeah, right, the, okay. the board, you know, dictate dividends and and capital policy. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously up to management to bring ideas to the board, mm-hmm. but that is a board decision. The management's operational management, I think, is very, very good. Yeah, uh, I think their strategy is excellent as well. But the capital management of the company today, I think, has been poor, and I think can improve significantly. And and I just keep banging my drum. <laughs> Okay, uh, so question eight. Is the company free to adjust prices to inflation? No, it's not because the environment's too competitive in one area and it's regulated in another area, so not, not really, no. Yeah, and then the last question. Uh, will the value added by retained earnings increase the market value of the company? It should, <coughs> and it's currently not. Okay. okay, and it should because basically the market value of the company should be increased by retiring expensive capital, which in this company's case is equity. Yeah. Okay, so over time, if, if they adjust their capital management policies, then uh, I hope to be able, you know, at, at a future date, be able to, to say categorically yes. Yeah. Okay, so in the case of cap charts, the, the, the sort of buffetology checklist. Uh, we, we fail on certain things. Yeah. So it's, it's not down in Bridge into Town or a monopoly like that, but it does have good returns on capital um, and it just needs to use the um, free cash flow that, that comes from those returns, in my opinion, in, in, in a slightly better way. Mm. And we, we should say that this checklist was more geared towards the compounding companies that you were talking about. Yeah. Buy and hold, yeah. for, you know, the Coca Colas and the Seas candies and all of that. Coca Cola is not a compounding company. Well, the ones that we bought in the Seas. Newspapers were at that time. Yeah, yeah. Compounding companies in Australia tend to be infrastructure things, you know, roads, yeah. airports, that sort of stuff, but obviously there's a question mark about the, you know, just how expensive they are. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of the interview. I did want to ask one question before we go because yeah. I really enjoyed your. Uber due diligence example of driving Uber, Uber for three months. So I wanted to ask, do you have any other good due diligence stories of things that you've done that are out of left field to do due diligence before buying? Floor seven four seven. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I've often done things like, um, you know, I found companies that have got what I think are surplus properties and surplus assets. So. Um, Rather than speak to management about it, you know, I just get in the car and drive to fun places and go actually look at the things. What are they? I then do, you know, you can do man title searches. I use, uh, which is a serious bone of contention, I do a lot of, um, I use the ASIC database quite a bit. 
which is an environment of contention, is the fact that in the UK it's free or a pound, in New Zealand it's free, and, and a company search in Australia is $19. Oh, wow. It's absolutely the most egregious ripper. It's terrible. Um, and yeah, we, we've done that. I mean, we, we've done searches on subsidiaries and things like that to check out, um, you know, what they earn, how they're financed, which don't come out in the consolidated accounts mm-hmm. of the company, that where all the subsidiaries are just meshing together. So I've done a lot of stuff like that. So yeah, yeah things like that. Not, not so much left field things like you know driving Uber, yeah. you know, like works in Maccas or anything like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the most, you know, the most obvious thing is, you know, you go to visit things. Mm. It's, it's the Peter Lynch theory, if you're off, and it's two brilliant books yeah. written in the 80s, one up on the other street, and beats in Australia, um, you know, which, which is all about if you, you know, if you're a consumer, you usually understand the company a little bit better. Um, certainly if you work in a company, you would understand it better again. Mm. So, um, yeah, you certainly understand how retailer works, and, you know, Work there part time on a Saturday or something like that. So, but then it's, it's things like I do a lot of searches, um, you know, and, and spend real money mm. uh, doing that out. And you know, my uh, you know probably one of my best investments so doing those three times I've done in about seven months uh, was done on the back of, of, of searching out an associate of a listed company uh, and realising that you know we were buying the things so cheaply. It was ridiculous that that was a company called the National Hire Group, which was controlled by Kerry Stokes, um, and um, it, it owned at the time forty six percent of Coates Hire, which wasn't listed. So we did all the searches for Coates Hire, built a model on that, realised how much that was worth, plugged that back into National Hire, and came up with a value we could put it for it. Wow! And, and and we got lucky. Goes back to the issue of time. Mm. I didn't know how long that was going to take. I was prepared to be very patient, yeah. as you can imagine. As it turned out, paid off in, in, in a few months. That's yeah. great. Which is, you know, that was, that was pretty rough. Yeah. It paid off in a few months. But, um, you, know, to, you know, to do the homework, to find it, was the, you know, very pleasurable. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure, Andrew, as always. As My Ren, pleasure. As Ren started with, first gets to you. Back on the show, yeah, absolutely. It's okay. thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable. I, you know, enjoy talking about investment, as you know, and um, you know, I, I hope people you know continue to listen to you know these kind of podcasts because they're you know it, it's a great way to get to learn, and you know, hopefully there's some practical advice in how we pull a few things to bits, mm-hmm. and, and and also you know, I have some advice about be humble because everything you look at is not going to work out, yes, uh, as, as you've seen and. and Fess up to that, mm-hmm. you know, and understand your mistakes. You know, I think you know what, what's critical is um, you know if you do make a mistake, understand why you made it, go back, write it up, keep a record of yeah. it as to why you made the mistake, where it went wrong, and you know so you don't you know repeat or you know repeat make a mistake again in the future. Yes, that's important. But thanks for having me. Loved it. Thank you. Before we go, if our listeners want to follow you on Twitter or Instagram, do you think you have a... Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, my company is called E72 Holdings, and we have a website, uh, Um Part of that is investment reports, and I write a quarter each quarter. Yeah, which is uh, great. I really which, enjoy it. Uh, which is <laughs> about 10 to 15 pages. Uh, sometimes it's just about markets, and but usually yeah, I have 
I usually, uh, <laughs> um, usually, uh, usually have a bit of. Um, I usually do a couple of companies that, that we have an investment in. Um, so, you know, for example, in the March quarter, we looked at uh, Gowing Brothers Limited, um, which is very interesting, and we own it, and we actually looked at McGrath as well, and competed with McGrath, who listed as state agent in the UK. Um, and also on there are some investment presentations that I've given. So I've, I've given one uh, very, very recently, and there's a link to that as well, uh, which covers off on uh, the holdings, some of the holdings we have, and we look at a couple of other companies in detail. Uh, Mount Cotton Limited and uh, US listed oil tanker owner called DHT Holdings, plus some other stuff on there. So there's quite a lot of ideas in that. There's mm. 30 odd pages of it. And then um, if you want to get in touch with me on social media, I'm at Avalon Investor, A B R O N I V E S T O R, on Twitter. And you'll get We're a, following. And you'll get, a, you'll get a little bit of politics and, <laughs> uh, and also, uh, yes. also you'll be kept up to date on the uh, performance of Scunthorpe United. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, well, I guess we'll leave it at that. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.